and turn to the book of Philemon. Book of Philemon. And today we're going to look at the last verse of this shortest of Paul's writings. We looked at it briefly last week, but we're going to look at it in more detail along with some other supporting scriptures today. Philemon, verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We are incurably religious. The reason? Because the Bible teaches us that God has put eternity in our heart. We were born with an innate desire to be religious. For instance, if this week is a typical week in the United States, there will be 102,000 people who go to their place of worship this week. If this year is a typical year in the United States, there will be a combined 94 million people who will go to professional baseball, professional football, and professional basketball Games. That means in one week, more people go to their place of worship in the United States than go to sporting events for the three major sports in the United States, the professional sports at least. That was a statistic that actually caught me off guard. Five times more people will go to their place of worship this week than will go to movies in the United States this week. I repeat, we are religious people. A more relevant consideration for us today would be, are we spiritual people? And more specifically, are we as the church of Jesus Christ spiritual Christians? Allow me to give you a test, the results of which we'll examine a little bit later during the message. And listen carefully to the wording of this question. Do you read your Bible primarily, emphasis on the word primarily, for inspiration from God, information about God, or intimacy with God? Let me repeat those three possible answers. There's only one that's right. Information about God, inspiration from God, or intimacy with God? As we've looked at the book of Philemon, what I've been challenging you to do, and hopefully the Spirit of the Lord has been doing the challenging, is to imitate Paul. Be like Paul. Why? Because Paul was like Jesus Christ. Paul was a spiritual man. But, like the rest of us, Paul did not begin his life as a spiritual man. He began his life as a religious man. He was born religious. He says in Philippians chapter 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. By birth, Paul was a religious man. Not only by birth, but also by choice he was a religious man. He says in regard to the law of Pharisee, that means he gave all of his energies to a very careful keeping, not only of the Old Testament law spelled out in the first five books of the Old Testament, but also to all the traditions which men had made associated with the Old Testament law. He goes on to say, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Understand, he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ in the name of God. He did it as a religious act. And he goes on to say, 
as to legalistic righteousness. In other words, righteousness that came from a careful keeping of the laws and traditions of his background, his religion. He was blameless, faultless. He was perfect in his keeping of the law. He was a religious man. Fortunately for him and for us, something magnificent happened to him, however. He speaks about it also in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. There's an innocent enough looking word. It's just a little conjunction that he begins verse 7 with. But he says, but. And that but is referring to the transformation which occurred in his life when on the road to Damascus he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And there began this radical change in his life from being a religious man to becoming a spiritual person. He said, All those things which I had depended upon for my righteousness, I count as garbage, is what he said, rubbish, in order that I may know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This verse of Scripture in Philemon, look at it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word translated "your." We would assume, because this is a personal letter from Paul to Philemon, our assumption would be, and it would be a logical assumption, is that that your is a singular pronoun. To you, Philemon. Philemon, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. But actually, it's a plural pronoun. Therefore, this is a message not just for Philemon, but for others in the church at Colossae and for you and for me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of our spirits, all of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. What is one spirit? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not one's soul. In the average Christian's mind, there is no distinction between the soul and the spirit. And I'll let you in on a little secret. In the typical evangelical New Testament scholars' mind, there is no difference between the soul and the spirit. But I would beg to differ with those scholars and with you if you've held that position that man is basically a duality, body and soul. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, the Bible says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit... Excuse me. And soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit economizes on words. He wastes no word. Therefore, if God would want us to think that the spirit and the soul were identical, he wouldn't even include the word spirit there, would he? He would have just said, may your soul and body be preserved complete. Also, notice the order in which Paul speaks of these parts of who we are. We are, in effect, a trinity in ourselves. He begins with the spirit, then goes to the soul, and then goes to the body. Well, what is the soul? Your soul, my soul, is the seat of our personalities. It's where self dwells. It consists of the mind. In Lamentations 3.20, in many other places I could allude to, but in the interest of time, this one reference will have to suffice. The Bible says, my soul remembers. The mind is part of the soul, the capacity to remember. The soul also consists of one's will. 
In 1 Chronicles 22.19, the writer says, Set your soul to seek the Lord. In other words, will your soul to seek the Lord. Our souls include our will as well. And lastly, our soul is comprised of our emotions. In Job 19.2, Job says, How long will you vex my soul? How long will you trouble my soul? The spirit is not the soul. Bear that in mind. But what is the spirit? Jesus gives us insight in John 4.24 where he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The spirit in its primary function is to provide the place where we can commune with God, when we can relate to God. The Spirit is the place where God actually dwells, if He dwells in an individual. When John was in the Spirit, the Bible says, on the Lord's Day, and some have interpreted that to be in the Holy Spirit, but actually the better interpretation would be little s Spirit. When He was in His Spirit, because the proper approach there that would normally associate with the Holy Spirit is absent. There's no definite article there. Revelation 1.10 says, When he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, God revealed himself to him. This is where one receives the Spirit. Your Spirit is where you receive revelation from God. If you have any communication from God to you, it will occur in your spirit. Not in your soul, but it occurs in our spirit. I was reading... In Numbers 7 last week, about Moses going into the tent of meeting. The Bible says he went into the tent of meeting, and he went in there to speak with God. And when he got in there, rather than his talking to God, he heard the voice from above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And whose voice was it? Obviously, it was God's voice. God was speaking to him. In Exodus 33:11, the Bible talks about when Moses would go into the tent of meeting, into the Holy of Holies, and he would meet with God. The Bible says God would speak to Moses as a man speaks with his friend face to face. Do you know God wants that relationship with you and me? Moses was a spiritual man, but he was a man. You and I are people just like Moses, just like Paul, who have a spirit and we have the capacity to relate to God to the degree that we understand the distinction between the soul and the spirit and we let our lives be controlled by God out of our spirit. Now let me get back to the test results a minute. Have you got your answer to the question or are you still trying to make up your mind? It's okay to change it if you want to right now. Nobody's going to call you down on it. Are we to read our Bibles primarily for information about God? Now, if I had said information of God, that would have probably been a correct answer. But no, we are not to read our Bibles primarily to gain information about God. Now, it is true that the Bible says in our Awana Verse is, if I'm not mistaken, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a place for studying God's word for information, but that's not the primary reason we study God's word. God wants spiritual men, not rational men. We have a revelational God. He reveals himself to him. There is information that we will never know about ourselves or about God unless God reveals it to us in our spirit. And this is so important for us to understand. Well, 
Do you read your Bible for inspiration? The answer is, once again, if that's the primary reason you read it, you're wrong. No, that's not the main reason. Now, we do know that after Jesus had taught the Sermon on the Mount, the people, the Bible says in Matthew 7, 28, were amazed at what they had heard. They were astonished. They were touched undoubtedly, not only in their minds, but they were also touched in their emotions. However, the primary reason for our reading the Scripture is not for inspiration any more than it would be for information. God wants spiritual people, not emotional people. It's for intimacy that we read the Word of God, primarily. If we're going to be spiritual people, that will be the case. Now, Paul was a spiritual man in this regard. You may remember in Galatians 1, when he was talking about the gospel which he preached, he said, I didn't get this message from another man. It was not taught to me. It was revealed to me by God. Where did he receive the message? He received it in his spirit. God revealed it to him in his spirit. Information about God (coughs) and inspiration from God are byproducts of reading the Scriptures to develop intimacy with God. Now, I've been to seminary. I've prepared hundreds of sermons. I've studied for those sermons. I've studied so I could get out of seminary, so I could preach sermons in churches like this. But do you understand something? What I know about who God is didn't come from those studies. It came from my daily meeting alone with the Lord for over 30 years to hear from Him. So that should be encouraging to you. You don't have to be a schooled theologian to understand the Bible. Now, I'm not knocking that at all, but I'm just hoping you can understand what Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you view your time alone with the Lord, reading His Word, from that perspective? Do you think it's just as essential for you to live on the Word of God as it is on the food which you eat every day? Why, going back to our verse, is grace necessary in order for you to be spiritual? It's because our souls are still religious. Even though we've been converted, our souls will go to the seed of religion every time if we let them. Our souls are the place, remember what I said? It's the place where our self is. What the Bible calls the flesh dwells in our soul. Now let's talk together about the divisions of a soulish life. Thank you. The divisions of a soulish life. In the early service this morning, we sang a song that's based on Psalm 103, verse 1. You know how that goes? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Who wrote that song? David wrote that song. We sang a song, or Becky did at least a little while ago, and it said that David was a man after God's own heart. Was David a spiritual man? Undoubtedly, he was a spiritual man. But notice what David did. And this is not the only occurrence, by the way. Psalm 103, verse 1 is not the only time that David and some of the other psalmists addressed their soul. Why did he address his soul? Because he knew his soul was incurably religious. He knew that if he did not maintain vigilance over his soul, and his spirit had to do that. It was his spirit speaking to his soul, by the way, I believe. When he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, he knew that if he did not do that, his life would be dominated by a soulish existence. 
Now, we know David fell off into sin a little later in his life. And it was because he did not listen to the voice in his spirit. And that voice was God's voice. Don't confuse your spirit with God because they're not the same. You're not a little God, but God has chosen to come and dwell in you by his spirit, enabling your spirit to be a tool in God's hands for the accomplishment of God's will through your life. Here are the four divisions of the soulish life, if you're taking notes. First of all, the soulish life is self-assertive. And interestingly enough, the soulish life is most obvious in Christians who are doing, now watch this, doing the Christian life. Soulish Christians are perpetually in motion. They're never able to sit still. They're so busy doing the Lord's work. And the reason they're motivated in this manner is because they long to be seen by other people. They're in pursuit of their own greatness. They ignore what the Bible says in Jeremiah 45, 5. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. It is innate in us, along with the fact that we're incurably religious, is we want to erect a monument to ourselves. Do you remember Absalom, the son of David? How he led a rebellion against God? And the Bible says he was fruitless. I think there's spiritual teaching there. He was fruitless spiritually. Why? He built a monument to himself because he had no children. He had to build a monument to himself. What many of us, and any soulish Christian does this, I've done it. I'm sorry to say, I'm grieved to think about how over the course of my life, I have spent way too much time trying to be seen by other people, thought by other people to be a spiritual person. The person in the pursuit of doing the Christian life, the good works. Now remember, We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. However, those good works are designed to glorify the Lord, not draw attention to Mike Woods or to you or to anybody else, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the pursuit of these good works, many times the soulish individual, the soulish Christian is distracted. Martha of Bethany is an example of this. The Bible says she was distracted by her service to the Lord, no less, to the Lord. Also, it is seen in the easy discouragement that is characterized by the soulish Christian. When we work out of our souls, we get so easily discouraged and we give up. The Bible says, do not grow weary in well-doing. Keep on trusting God. The soulish Christian acts impulsively also in his or her work for the Lord. Doing the Lord's work, mind you, works and acts impulsively. In the Old Testament, the story is told about King Saul who was about to engage the Philistines in battle at Gilgal. And he was waiting for the prophet and priest Samuel to get there to offer a burnt offering to the Lord in order to get the support of the Lord. And his troops were becoming very restless. They'd been there an entire week. They'd been promised that Samuel was coming, but Samuel had not shown up. So what did Saul do? He does what any soulish person would do. He got impatient. He got tired of waiting. And he offered the burnt offering himself. He took the priest's responsibility into his own hands. Guess who showed up no sooner than he had put the offering on the altar? Who showed up? Samuel. If he just waited a little longer. But it's characteristic of the soulish Christian who is self-assertive to act impulsively. The self-assertive soulish Christian insists on complete agreement too in his mission or her mission. 
If you don't agree with what that person is saying you should do, then you are X'd out of that person's life. You're blackballed by that person. The soulish Christian is so deeply attached to his work that he will in turn exclude others' work in the body of Christ and suggest that he or she has a corner on the market for ministry. Here's the second division of the soulish life. It's self-conceit. It craves recognition. We've talked about that already. Saul was such a man. The person who is a soulish person in self-conceit is boastful. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Don't we like to boast with how much we know? Sometimes we're real subtle in the way we go about it. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this. Are you ever tempted when God uses you to boast about it? Now, I have this happen to me way too often. I'm crying out to the Lord. I'm saying, Lord, help me. I can't do this, Lord. I say this about 18 times a week. Lord, I can't do this. Help me. And then the Lord helps me, and he does it. And then, man, am I ever proud. You know, I'm wanting to go out and crow like a rooster and say, wow, God did a great thing. He led this guy to the Lord through me. He led this lady to the Lord through me. That is the soul in action. The soul shows its self-conceit in being critical of other people, particularly other Christians, who, whom God is blessing, by the way, using. Self-conceit surfaces in cliquishness as well, as in the church at Corinth. Remember, there was a group which said, I'm of Paul. Another said, I'm of Apollo. Some said, I'm of Cephas. And then there were some who said, why, we're of Christ. We're above the rest of you. Now, we know Jesus. He's our mentor. He's our rabbi. The clickishness, when we click up, when we think that being Baptist is the last word in Christianity, when we think that Coronado Baptist Church is the best church on the west side, the best church in El Paso, when we have that mentality, we are reflecting our soulish understanding of the Christian life. We're just part of something that is so much bigger than Coronado Baptist Church. Grateful for being a part of this church, but certainly understanding that this is a soulish approach and a godless approach, an immature approach to understanding our place in the body of Christ. The self-conceit surfaces in comparing ourselves with other people. Why don't we compare ourselves with other people? Because we want to look better than they are. That's why we do it. We admire our work. We're therefore numbers conscious. Remember what happened to David? The Bible says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a spiritual man. He's our role model, right? As he followed the Lord Jesus, he's our role model. You know, when he was talking about baptizing people in the church at Corinth, he was there for 18 months. He won a lot of people to Christ. He said, you know, I only baptize Crispus and Gaius. And he makes an amazing statement. He says, I thank God I only baptize Crispus and Gaius. I thank God that I got a chance to baptize Ellen Keenan today. I thank God every time I want to baptize somebody. And I have to be careful that that's not designed to make me feel better about myself. Look, if anybody comes to Christ, it's not because of me. And it's not because of you. We do what we're supposed to do in the Lord himself saves people. And that's important for us to understand. The third division 
of the soulish life is what I would call self-wisdom. One of the sadder moments in my pastoral experience was when I stood in a deacon's meeting, not in this church, in another church, and we were discussing a very serious matter in our church. And I said about this issue, the Bible says, and I had a deacon, and I'm glad I can't even remember who he was. The Lord has completely blanked it out of my mind, and I have a hard time forgetting anybody's face, at least, and usually their names. And he said to me after I said the Bible says, he says, I don't care what the Bible says. Well, that was telling, wasn't it? You know, Satan can't keep himself masqueraded indefinitely. And I'm not saying that man was satanic, but he was used by Satan, just like the Apostle Peter was used by Satan, after he made the most clear description of who Jesus was. That came to him in a revelation. And he made this wonderful statement about Jesus being the Son of God. And Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Barjona. There was a revelation to his spirit. And then right on the heels of that, he tells Jesus that Jesus should not deny himself. He should pity himself, preserve himself. And he gets into his soulish life again. And we'll get to that in a little while. The self-wisdom in the soulish life, is full of plans and usually big plans and big ideas. Now, it's okay to have big dreams for God. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, would often go before crowds that did not know him. He was invited to speak all over the place. And he would begin his talk sometimes by asking the question, what is the biggest thing that you have asked God for this week? He wanted to shock them, rattle their cage a bit. But what we need to understand is, why would we want to do big things for God? Because our plans are so clever. Our perspective is so great. We should seek the Lord and make plans, but we should follow what the Word of God says in James 4. We should always preface what we're about to say about our plans by saying, if the Lord wills, if it's God's will, we will do such and such. Here's the fourth division of the soulish life. It seeks emotional experiences. It thrives on sensation. It's impressionable as a result. It is impressed with the way things look in a room like this when we come into a room. It either likes or does not like the architecture, and the whole worship experience can be ruined by the aesthetics or lack of aesthetics. Now, God gives people creativity to produce things that are aesthetically pleasing. Beautiful to see, to hear, to experience. But the soulish Christian is a person who is strictly living under being impressed with people and things rather than hearing in his or her spirit from the Lord. Because this person seeks emotional experiences and thrives upon sensations, this person is overly sensitive in relationships. Feelings are easily hurt. Let me ask you, have your feelings been hurt at church? Maybe somebody really was mean to you. Maybe I was mean to you. And if I was, you need to let me know, and hopefully I'd be humble enough to say I'm sorry. I know I've hurt a lot of people's feelings in my life, and I don't mean to when I do. Maybe sometimes I do, but <laughs> not all the time. Here's a tougher one. Do you get angry when you get overlooked? When you get neglected, 
Does it really puff you up? Do you get pouty? Do you withdraw? This is especially seen in our homes. When my wife neglects me, when my children disrespect me, how do I respond in really the ultimate laboratory for the Christian life? It's in your home. It's not at church. It's not at work. It's when you're at home. What happens in your heart when you're neglected? If you are one who gets your feelings hurt easily or if you're a person who gets angry easily, then you must come to grips with the fact that you're living out of your soul and not out of your spirit. You're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. You're under the control of your own devices in your own soul. How can we make this transition? I know for one, I want to quit being so soulish and to become spiritual. So how does that occur? We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Just a couple of more pages really to the end of the Bible from where you are in Philemon. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. We're going to see two steps that we can take in order to move from being soulish Christians to spiritual Christians. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of, here are those two words, in close proximity, of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, before I forget it, who is our priest now? Who is our high priest? Jesus is. And the background of the book of Hebrews is that Levitical background, the whole background of a series of, of endless sacrifices which were made to pay for the sins of mankind. When someone would bring an offering to be sacrificed for sin, what the priest would do, the priest would, first of all, bind the offering up so it would not wiggle off the altar, place it on the altar, slit the jugular vein of the offering, and then the blood would let out. And then once the animal was dead, what the priest would do, he would take a knife and he would find the center line down the breast and down through the body of that animal and would cut that with a sharp knife, a two-edged sword, cut right down and cut that animal in half. Then would lay the animal bare and then would cut to the division of the matter, the, the bones, the joints, and the marrow of that animal. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? It has everything to do with us. Here's the first step implied in this passage of Scripture because the altar in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. What this says to you and me, if we are going to be people who are going to make this transition from being soulish to being spiritual, we must crucify the flesh, as Paul describes it. Die to ourselves. In Galatians 6.14 he says, Through the cross the world has died to me and I have died to the world. Jesus has some very specific words at this point. He says, first of all, that we must die to the natural affections of the soul. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me and is unwilling to put me first in his or her life above all human relationships, then that person is not worthy of me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You cannot be my disciple. Now, certainly the Lord wants us to love the people in our family. He wants us to honor our parents. He wants us to 
care for our wives and our husbands and our children. There's nothing wrong with that. However, now this is very subtle, and this is a function of the soul too. This is what happens many times. In the interest of preserving embarrassment or concern about our families many times, we will stand behind our families as an excuse for really selling out to the Lord. That's a soulish perspective. And I'm not saying we should neglect our families. We should give all the attention that God would have us to give to our families. But be careful here. Because the Lord says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus was using hyperbole there because he says to us we were to even love our enemies. But you get the point. If our relationship to Christ is interfered with, by our concern for our family, then we have made an idol out of our family. And Christ calls us to die to that. He also calls us to die to ourselves, which reside in our souls. Mark 8, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Many are willing with Abraham to leave one place to go to another place. But what happened to Abraham promise of God came to fulfillment in his life when he had this son Isaac. What did God tell him to do with Isaac? What did he tell him? Take him up on Mount Moriah and kill the boy. That's heavy. Are you willing to give your child up to the Lord like that? To die to the dreams which you have for your son or your daughter, for someone in your family, in order that God's will can be done? And Paul, what does he say about himself? 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die daily. Do you know, just because you are spoken to by the Spirit of God in your spirit, you receive revelation from God. You are communing with the Lord, just like Peter did at Caesarea Philippi when he knew who God was. You know, the next minute we can lapse right back into soul life, okay? And what God wants us to learn to do is to walk in the Spirit moment by moment by moment and not be people who are so tied to our minds or our emotions or our own preferences that we miss what God would have us to do. A couple of years ago, the motto our children had, youth had when they went on their trip was, don't look back. Remember that, guys? What was it based upon? I think it's Luke 17, 32. Remember who? Lot's wife. Now, did Lot's wife, and if you don't know the story, read it in Genesis, did she make one step back toward Sodom? She did not take one physical step in that direction. But in her mind, in her heart, in her soul, in her will, she went back there, didn't she? She was attached to that place. So the first step, if you and I are going to be spiritual people rather than soulish Christians, is that we're going to have to die to ourselves. Crucify the flesh is the biblical term for it. Second step is we must submit to God's Word. Because it's living and active, sharper than the two-edged sword. We have to bring our lives under the scrutiny of the Spirit of God as He speaks to us through the Word of God. And by the way, I know enough from my own experience to know that the reason you don't read your Bible any more than you do, because I've been in the same boat you're in if you're in that boat, is because sometimes it's painful to read God's Word. Because it's like a mirror. And we hold it up to ourselves. And we see things there that don't please us when we look into the mirror. 
and we excuse it. And in excusing those things, it's because we're living out of our soul instead out of our spirit where the Holy Spirit dwells trusting Him. Now in Hebrews 10.20, the Bible compares the flesh of Jesus Christ to the veil, the curtain, which separated in the temple the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God dwelled, and the holy place where the priest would go in to minister in preparation for the ministry in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But what happened when Jesus died? Do you remember what happened when He died? That veil or that curtain was torn in two. And how was it torn? From which direction? From the top to the bottom. Indicating that it was not man's work, it was God's work. God was doing something. And what He was saying, in effect, because if we were to compare the tabernacle and the temple to our lives, the Holy of Holies is like our spirit. The holy place is like our soul. And when a person comes to Jesus Christ as his or her high priest and lets Christ enable him or her to die to himself or herself and to let Christ speak to him or her by his Spirit through his Word, then there's this beautiful influence that the spirit of a person has on the soul of that person. And so your mind and your will and your emotions begin to function properly under the control of the Holy Spirit who's indwelling you. So what we need to understand is this is a work of God, what I'm talking about today. It's a work of God, and it's the most significant work of God, I might add, for living the Christian life. We have to cooperate because the Bible says in Philippians 2, 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. You know, if you've listened to what I've said, and I'm almost through and you've been very patient today, If you've listened to what I've said today, and hopefully God's Spirit has spoken to you through what I've said, if you have heard from the Lord today, He is speaking to you and He's telling you it's time to change from being a soulish Christian to being a spiritual Christian. You've played at this way too long. You need to give up control of your life to let me control your life. You know who put that impulse in your heart? The Spirit of God did And He will empower you to fulfill what you promised to do today. That's important to understand. Because the Bible says in Ezekiel 36, I will remove from you your heart of flesh, and stone rather, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, a new spirit, He says. And I will move you to follow my laws and obey me. You know why we don't obey the Lord like we would want to, maybe? It's because we're not trusting the Holy Spirit to do it. We sing a song on Saturday night, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right soul in me. Isn't that what it says, Mike? Isn't that what it says, renew a right soul in me? Is that what it says, Becky? Renew a right spirit in me. It goes on just a little further in verse 17 of Psalm 51, and it says this. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And that a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Do you notice the sequence there? What comes first? There has to be a broken spirit before there can be a broken soul. We're living so often, I'm afraid of this, that we in the 21st century church in America 
are living out of our souls in our Christianity. And this explains the lack of influence we have. Not just our church, but I'm talking about the church at large. When there's virtually no difference in the way Christians live and the way the world lives. When you study the statistics, no difference at all. I pray that God will speak to your heart today. Just go ahead and bow your heads. If God has spoken to you today, you know it. And if He's spoken to you, it's been in your spirit, not in your soul. If He's spoken to you and He's put the finger on soulish behavior and He's saying, you need to repent of that. Would you just go to the Lord and say, Lord, please help me to repent of this. Help me to change. Help me to become a spiritual person. Lord, thank you for this message and how you've worked me over through it as I prepared for it and delivered it. Lord, don't give up on me. Please don't. Don't give up on us. We're your people. You've redeemed us by the blood of your Son, Jesus. You've separated us to be useful to you. But Lord, we know that until we become more spiritual, you can't really use us. And we ask you, by your grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you'd be with our spirit and empower us by your Holy Spirit to do your work. In Jesus' name I pray.